Hi there. Welcome to episode 29. Our topic today on the Wake Up Eager Workforce podcast is brain research and negative reactions. What you need to know to lead, grow, and grow yourself and your team. This is an interview I did with Dr. Ron Bonstetter, who is the Senior Vice President of Research and Development at TTI Success Insights. That's a company that I have partnered with since 2004, and it's a fun and energizing interview. It's very informative. We're going to talk about the brain research that Dr. Ron Bonstetter does, what he does, how he does it, why he got into this, how we're using his research with the assessments. And then some additional insight into what does it mean when we want to avoid something and what happens in our brain and what does that tell us about ourselves and uh, understanding others. We're going to talk about words that don't work and a study he did around political preferences. And we're going to talk about what separates us and how to overcome that. This is episode number 29. Let's get started. Welcome to the Wake Up Eager Workforce Podcast, a show designed for leaders, trainers, and consultants who are responsible for employee selection and professional development. Each episode is packed full with insider tips, best practices, expert interviews, and inspiration. Please welcome the host who is helping leaders, trainers, and consultants everywhere, Susie Price. Hi there, my name is Susie Price. I am a professional facilitator, consultant, and author, and the creator of the Wake Up Eager Workforce podcast. My company is Priceless Professional Development, and our focus is on building energy, commitment, and communication in organizations. And I love this work. I've been doing it for the past 13 years. And I started this work in 2004. It was actually the end of 2003, but officially launched 2004. And one of the first things I did in 2004 was become a value-added associate is what they call us, which is a distributor uh, with a company called TTI Success Insights. They're based out of Scottsdale, Arizona. And I became certified in that first year with the DISC assessment, which is the Certified Professional Behavior Analyst, the Certified Professional Motivators Analyst, which is the Motivators Assessment, the Certified Professional Trimetrics HD Assessment. So all of those three assessments are tools that I use often. I've talked about here in different podcast episodes, and I'm super excited to have Dr. Ron Bonstetter here today to talk about his research. He is a part of that company, TTI Success Insights, and so much of what he does rolls out into what you see when you get involved in using the assessments for team building, leadership, um, science of self, science of others. So I'm very excited about having him on the on the podcast. He is smart. He is fun. He's a good communicator. He's passionate about what he's doing. And he's so passionate that we ended up doing, which was awesome, we ended up doing two episodes. So we had a long conversation. So I've split this up into episode 29, which is what you're getting ready to listen to. And then we'll have a, a second, the second half of the interview in episode 30. So to find the show notes for today, because I'll have, um, we talk about words that don't work in this episode, and we he talks about some brain images, and I will share those in the show notes. So let me make sure you know where they are for this episode. You can access that. Plus, I'll put some samples of assessments uh, in case you're curious about them, and as well as the other podcasts that I've done on the topic of of style and motivators, because we mentioned that a bit here in the interview. But the show notes can be found at Priceless Professional 
dot com forward slash brain, B-R-A-I-N. And you just do that lowercase. So that's for episode 29. And I'm going to, in a second, read to you Dr. Bonstetter's bio, and then we'll get right into the interview. But I do want to mention that if you're curious about other episodes in general around this podcast, uh, go to wakeupeagerworkforce.com, wakeupeagerworkforce.com, and you'll see a directory of all the episodes leading up to this one. I've got interesting interviews and uh, topics uh, that are interesting. I have been told they're interesting to leaders and professionals everywhere. So tune into those. If you want to connect via Twitter at Wake Up Eager, all one word, Wake Up Eager. Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Wake Up Eager. And of course, on LinkedIn, you can find me at Suzy Price, S U Z I E Price. And so let me tell you about Dr. Bonstetter's background. He is, as I mentioned in the opening, the Senior Vice President of Research and Development for Target Training International and a Professor Emeritus of University of Nebraska. Uh, He conducts research and speaks about the brain and human behavior. He's published works for TTI and has been recognized with the 2012 Edison Award nomination. He's been featured in publications such as Harvard Business Review Education Weekly, Neuro Connections, Advances in Mind, Body, Mind, Medicine. Uh, he's been featured in Counseling Today and many other uh, research and news vehicles. His current research is about the development of biology based communication strategies, peak performance, and the brain. Um, he's talking about the development of personal attributes, soft skills, and brain based findings that inform human interactions. And we really get into that in the interview. So uh, hold your hat because it's going to be interesting. He talks a little bit about what he measures is the prefrontal cortex gamma asymmetry, which he explains that. That actually makes sense when he explains it. Uh, He was the first recipient of the National Senior Outstanding Science Educator of the Year Award. And he is... um, been recognized in the search for excellence in science education. And that's uh, related to some of his whys, how he got into this aspect of his work. So you'll find that interesting. And the people that he has met, he's met some pretty famous people in his career and been all over the world. Uh, He's helped uh, our company, TTI Success Insights, the company that I'm a value-added associate for and distributor of their tools, um, helped them win a leadership award in 2015. And just an awesome human being with a lot of passion for his work. And without any further setup, let's go into the interview now. Hope you enjoy it. Well, I'm so excited to have Dr. Ron Bonstetter here today. Dr. Ron, thank you for being here. You're welcome. So we're going to start with those personal questions first because I've already shared your uh, background and your bio, would love for you to, just so we can get to know you personally and something we normally wouldn't hear about when we're talking about brain research, and tell us about your favorite Guilty Pleasure TV show. What is it, and why is it your favorite? Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, I probably watch different TV than a lot of people, but I would, I would put Big Bang toward the top in terms of shows that I watch, and one of the reasons for that is uh, tied actually to my research and to the fact that I spent 40 years in education. And Asperger's in particular has always fascinated me. In fact, Mm. I still work with uh, 
with two people periodically over the internet that have Asperger's. And so um, I find that to be a topic. And Sheldon certainly exhibits uh, some minor characteristics associated with Asperger's. So it, it, it not only is a pleasure, it actually allows me to reflect on the connections between what I do and what I do in play. And, you know, I think I read somewhere that all of those formulas are real formulas. So when you look at them, you can probably, you probably know that they're real formulas. You know, they, when they have are. Their, and that, yeah. You know, in terms of another, another show that no one actually knows about, I got booked immediately on uh, Mr. Robot for the same reasons. Mr. Robot, if you really know anything about computer programming, everything is totally accurate and the words are right. And it's like, I sort of, I'm hearing a secret code behind the show that nobody else sees. And that, that's sort of a cool feeling. I, I think my wife sees that all the time in, in other shows because I don't know anything about the world. So they make connections I don't get. <laughs> <laughs> but those two shows you totally get. I hadn't seen Mr. Robot. We'll put that on the list. But Big Bang is... My folks are retired, and, and they just tell me all the time about how funny it is and Sheldon and this and that. <laughs> Everybody likes it, all ages. Yeah. Yeah, and plus I can see where it would tie into your research and the other work you've done, so that's very cool. It does. Yeah. You were interested in something that uh, maybe people don't know about me. We had talked about that previously. Uh, yeah. And I've been thinking well, about that. that. Yeah. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is a generality and that people say, do you have a hobby? And I said, yes, my hobby is that I collect hobbies. And so that, that's a strange statement, but I've, I've actually had over 14 serious hobbies. And when I say serious, something that, that you really take like an OCD person that just goes crazy with this, this hobby. Uh, my most recent, I've actually had for over four years now, and Nicolette, my wife, is very impressed. I've stuck with a hobby for four years. <laughs> uh, I play Native American flute. And four years ago, I did not play the flute. I did not read music. I had not played, never had I played a musical instrument. And I now do uh, concerts uh, two or three times a month. I have an online uh, concert that I do weekly. And Native American flute is something I embrace daily. I play it every day. And, you know, Susie, it actually ties again into what I do because the, the flute is very meditative and it has some frequencies in the pentatonic scale that tie directly to, to uh, brain frequencies. And so, again, I'm able to connect some things in some interesting ways. It's not a separate entity in my life. It, it's a reflective entity. Ah, I love that. And I think I saw you a couple of years ago at one of the TTI conferences playing the Native American flute. It was a part of a demonstration about, I think it was about learning. I don't know. Yeah. Did you play it on the stage one time? I did, but you know, that's a joke around here. I keep figuring out ways to sneak the flute into a, into a presentation, <laughs> and, then, and they keep trying to hide my flutes. <laughs> It's like, no, Dr. Ron, we're not using that again. So That's you right. said, what's one other unusual hobby, since you said you've collected many over the years? What's one other unusual one, just because I think it would be interesting? Well, I don't know how unusual. Well, uh, car restoration. I was a scientist. I knew nothing about cars. That was a different group of kids when I grew up that played with cars. And yet, as a scientist, I thought, this is doable. It's a formula. You simply study it, and you make it happen. So, and again, I got carried away rather than just uh, doing car restoration. I have done complete restorations on three British cars. I have one that I'm finishing right now 
1951 Riley. It's a very, very unusual car. Uh, but again, embracing that completely, I went from not just having a car and making some changes in it to building a full restoration garage complete with sandblasters and uh, welders and a lift and everything associated with doing it right. So it just mm. I get carried away a little bit. I like it. I like it. My husband has is that same kind of, uh, but mostly about cars. And he's an executive, so it's not something he would normally do. But he same thing. You guys could have a good conversation around that. That's cool. Yeah. Well, let's see what else is this good because I actually have, I've embraced this uh, this latest topic for this conversation as well, and I'm pretty excited to have the opportunity to share with you some of the things that we're doing right now. Awesome. So let's get into that. I know you through TTI or my association with TTI Success Insights, and uh, you have a brain research facility there, and you measure brain activity. And I've seen the what I call the brain hat, or at least one of them. That's what I call it. And the the I think the technical name is VIDE, validating ipsative decision making with. Electroencephalography, maybe? I'm not sure. That's correct. Well Was done. that close? Let's just, let's just call that EEG and make life a little easier for oh, both. Oh, well, there you go. So you're measuring measuring brain activity, and it's uh, that information is incorporated in, that research is incorporated in the use of our assessments. But let's talk a little bit about what you're doing and who you're measuring and how, how, how this is a unique in this field. Yeah, we're coming to it a little bit back door, but let's let's take a look at the concept. First of all, after I introduce this a little bit, I do want to back up and explain why we're doing it. Okay, but right great. now, let's talk about what it is I do. And what Perfect. we're really doing is that we'll bring in a participant. We hook them up with what is called a neuronet. And it's, it's a 19-electrode neuronet that simply flips over your head. And these electrodes are associated with 19 different locations that are scientifically determined. So in other words, it's called a, a 1020 montage. There's, a, there's specific locations on the skull where scientists have agreed that this is where we will collect data. And so we align those with those 19 locations. And then we're using, there's a variety of softwares. In our particular case, I'm using a system on a brain avatar. And Brain Avatar allows me to do real-time imaging. So I'm actually able to see what your brain is doing and how it's reacting based on the electroactivity that's coming out of those, uh, those 19 sites in real time. And furthermore, the program turns it into uh, colored images. So I'm getting this image that's moving dynamically in front of me as you are thinking about a, a concept or a trigger. So then imagine that I've got a TV screen set up or a, a computer monitor in which you are looking at a stimuli and I'm now going to see your brain reaction and the decision-making pathways associated with that reaction as you watch that trigger. So it becomes a very dynamic system and very exciting, a lot of data. I'm getting over a quarter of a million data points per second. Wow. That's a lot amazing. of data coming out and, and a very a lot of exciting data. Uh, to carry this one step further, uh, I hope that made a little bit of sense. Let's simplify yep. it. Here's what we really have. I am focusing in on only one wave band, and it's called the gamma waves. And gamma waves in our research are defined by uh, a range of 38 to 42 hertz. In other words, cycles per second. 
So we have, we're looking at waves coming out of your brain that are pretty fast. They're 38 to 42. That's a fast wave compared to like, I don't know, um, delta waves that are zero to four hertz per second. That's when you're okay. in sleep. So these are very active waves. And we're looking only at the front of the brain, which is your executive function portion of the brain. So we want to see how you're processing decision-making. And so I'm looking just at decision-making. I'm looking just at gamma. And by only looking at gamma, it allows me to see really what is uh, referred to in the literature as a precognition. This is such a fast wave that it actually is triggering your thought process in a precognitive manner. I am looking at your decision-making before you've thought about it. Oh, okay. That's interesting. It is because you see about the, the literature in social science has said for many years that people tend to make decisions and then they spend their time rationalizing and justifying the decision they already made. Right. But they didn't understand the science behind that statement. All they knew is that people tend to make these emotional knee-jerk reactions about 95% of the time, and then they stick with it. They don't change. Mm -hmm. They're cemented to that idea. I now understand that I can show you that emotional reaction. That's what it is. It's an emotional reaction. The gamma is a catalyst for the thought. So I'm looking at the catalyst before the reaction. And the catalyst is an emotional connection. So every decision we make has an emotional component to it, more than others. And so this is exciting to see this, this gamma wave activity. Now, what really makes this simplified, though, is the fact that this is differentiated in the frontal lobes, right and left. In other words, if I decide I like something, I see a gamma burst on the left side of the prefrontal cortex. If I have a person who has avoidance to a concept, they do not like it, it will be a burst on the right side of the prefrontal cortex. And so all of a sudden, we have this ability to literally read your mind. That's amazing. Now, who are, you, who are your participants? What kind of people are you reading in this way? Well, we actually put out calls here in Scottsdale periodically through a local magazine for participants, uh, and we outline in there what the study will be and the fact that they are sort of donating their time as volunteers to help us out. But the studies then are really predetermined by what questions we wish to answer. And in some cases, because we are a software company that's involved in a, a selection for hire and professional yep. development, we have a set of sciences or uh, assessments that deal with behaviors and motivators and driving forces and soft skills and emotional quotient, stress quotient. So in other words, what I'm really doing in almost all cases is I'm having an individual take the assessment on paper, and then I'm having them retake the assessment while we collect brainwave activity. Okay, so doing, they actually take I'm the real it. assessment, not the real, but they take it like, like yeah. any of our clients would or any of my clients would, and then they yeah. actually put on the, what did you call it? Uh, Neuronet. Neuronet, and you're collecting data when you're showing, are you showing them images from the assessment or having them answer the assessment now well, in their mind? They're literally seeing, they're seeing the real words in that case. Okay. They're seeing the words and they're reacting to that word. So, for example, they might see the word... Uh, daring 
and their brain is going to react to the word daring. They're going to see the word careful, and their brain's going to react to careful as, with regard to what they think of that, it, that whether that's a reflection oh. of them or not. It'll now, either be an avoid do, response or a like response or maybe a neutral correct, response. Which that, really corresponds to how they answered the survey. Did they put it number one or did they put it number four? Do they like it? Do they dislike it? So we do a correlational study. Now, this is not something that our uh, software users across the country are going to do. We do this for two reasons. We're doing it for validation to see if we really are doing the right, asking the right questions and are we getting evidence that it's coming directly out of the brain and not made up. And number two, it's causing us to be able to refine our assessments in ways we never dreamed possible. Uh, for example, uh-huh. for example, when I do a behavioral assessment and you answer one, two, three, four, one being most like me, four being least like me. Now that's part of an assessment that we give. And what we find is that when I run then people on the brain, I can actually fill out their assessment with just the brain activity, 84% of the time I will be correct on what they said was number one. However, what they said was number four, avoidance. What I'm not is virtually 100% agreement between the brain and the survey. Now, what that tells us, what that tells us is that in a conversation, we literally are exposing more of who we are when we talk about what we dislike than what we talk about what we like. And actually, a simple example of that would be going out to a brand new restaurant and you open the menu and you examine the choices for the evening. And I can tell you right now, you probably don't think about this, but mentally, one of the processes you employ is you immediately dismiss everything in the menu you won't eat. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's got kale. Anything with kale is gone. I'm not, I'm not eating, eating kale. Yep. Oh, All right, okay. so, but then you had this terrible, difficult task of deciding. That's a different pathway. And so our assessments are really taking advantage of the fact that when you tell us something, no, when you say no to something, uh, we have to weight that pretty strongly because that's a pretty strong indication of uh, reality for you. Does that make sense? It does. And I think what it's led to in the assessments is, uh, and there are people listening to this who have taken the assessments, there's one part of the assessment that in the disc that talks about uh, absence of a behavior that used to not be there now. So it's our lowest. And there's a whole couple of pages talking about if this is your lowest style, you're now highlighting it or, I mean, the way it's playing out in the world is to make sure, or in this work, to make sure people understand what they want to avoid just as much as what they're, what they prefer, it sounds like. Absolutely. And I'm afraid the, uh, the assessment industry as a whole uh, has only looked at our strengths and has ignored when we say no, what that really means. And probably the biggest example of our brain uh, research at work is our rethinking of our six motivators now into our 12 driving forces. Because when you tell us 12 times you're not something, and on the old report we said, well, yeah, you're just not that. No, no, you just told me 12 times that this is offensive. This is bad. This is something you do not like. And we better. it's actually a motivator because I'm motivated to avoid it. That's correct. That's correct. And that makes it so exciting. Uh, These insights, um, they excite me. I'm a high theoretical, so I just get excited about learning. 
And then, of course, everybody in the building wants to know, what do you do with the information? They, they seem to have a different filter. <laughs> you have some utilitarian in there somewhere, I think. Oh, yeah. Yes, you do. So it's interesting that you're able to validate. I mean, did, and does it happen most of the time? Or you said with the disk, it's you're 84% correct when, you know, when they've completed the assessment written or online, and then when they're doing the brain visuals, you're pretty correct. I mean, do you find that almost all the time that there's there's an absolute correlation? Well, we do. But keep in mind that this is, first of all, a social science. It's not physics. Right. So uh, we have complications. We're working with humans that you don't run into in the physical world. And one of those complications is that each of us, let's take behavior as an example. DISC, you're not uh, dogmatically one or another. Uh, You're on a continuum for all four. And so the fact that we are not in total agreement is also a factor that each individual is unique and comes with a unique location on those four dynamics to start with. And so what we did in this particular study is we took people that were 90% or above. So you had to have a 90 or above to, to qualify to be a D or to be a C. Right. So that we were trying to look at a sort of dogmatic approach to this rather than people that were uh, middle of the road graphic. Yeah, right. Had a bunch of things above the line, just barely or something. Yeah, yeah. that makes Actually, sense. Actually, when I mentioned that, the reason I paused is that another study we did that is related to behaviors was the concept of words that don't work. And yep. oh, did that open some interesting things. Because we took, again, groups of people that were DISC, 90 or above, and uh, had nothing that they were 10 or below, so that they would be middle range on the other factors. And we wanted to see how they would react to a set of words that my brother Bill created back in 1984 that he said when you're working, for example, in a conversation or sales, that you literally could turn off a conversation by using the wrong word. And so we wanted to check these words out. And we found some absolutely fascinating outcomes from all of that. Uh, in your show notes, I may throw a slide in. And so keep in mind, if you want to see a slide that actually shows thermometers with this, I'll, I'll send that to you. So That'd be great. when you think about words that don't work, it's interesting because the most forgiving people you work with are high eyes. They don't have real triggers. They're pretty happy and they're forgiving, followed by S's and then D's. But there is one group that is a full standard deviation different from the other three, and that is our lovely C's. Our people that are really, really high on the C behavioral, the compliance component, right, uh, are the least forgiving, all right? Okay. Now, let me give you an example of what that means. Uh, I was 40 years in education, and in those, that time frame, I referred to myself as an educational reformer. And I traveled the world. I worked in 15 different countries. I tried to work with teachers to get them to try new things. Uh, Now, let's imagine that I have a group in front of me. And by the way, every culture has its own behavioral styles that dominate that culture. Education is dominated by S's and C's. That's not good or bad. It's just part of the culture. Right. There's some steadiness there, and they are very compliant, and, and they follow directions. Uh, There are all kinds of implications for that. But recognize now that I'm going to go into a whole room of these lovely SCs, and I'm going to start a presentation on educational reform. Imagine I start it this way. 
I have this awesome new curriculum that is a brand new curriculum. No one else in the nation has used it yet. This is an experiment that you are going to be the first to do, and it's going to be an opportunity to do something that no one else has ever done. Yep. You know, Those are all words that don't work right for high now. S and C. Well, no, they don't work. <laughs> right? And the audience is going, I don't do new. Yeah. I don't do trial. I'm not your guinea pig. Yep. This is what's going through their mind. I have lost the audience before I ever started. Yeah. And so we need to realize not only our own behaviors, but we need to realize how it's interplaying with others. And we have got to modify and adapt if we're serious about communicating. Absolutely. Because I'll tell you, another part of our research that is just exciting, we just finished a study on politics. We took off-scale Republicans and off-scale Democrats and ran some studies on them to see if there were words that would trigger problems. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you came up with some, I'm guessing. <laughs> oh, we did. But here's what's fascinating. Remember I said that 95% of the time you really justify your answer and, and rationalize your answer and not really think about your answer? Yeah. That is, that's part of our survival as humans. We have learned to have fight, flight, or freeze responses when we are threatened. And if you think back at the words I used with those teachers, I'm sorry, that's a threat. Yep. I'm telling them they're going to do something that they don't want to do. And the same thing happens daily in our conversations with our children, with colleagues, oh, yep. and certainly in politics. Where, yeah. And all it takes is for you to use a trigger word and it shuts down the prefrontal cortex, it shuts down thinking, and you activate cortisol, you activate adrenaline, and you activate the amygdala, which is designed to have an emotional response with no thinking. Oh, that's so, and you know, it's so interesting. You hear, you hear words that don't work and you listen to the disc and, you know, if you personally experience, you know, yourself adapting to someone else and you see how more effective it is, then you're a true believer and, and you get it and you try it and you use it. Um, but on now on top of that, you're saying you're backing all of that up with our, you know, our experience of the difference it makes with there's real science behind the fact of how the brain works, you know, that these things get triggered in the brain that, that's just so powerful. It really is. And in fact, I mentioned early on in the interview that I wouldn't mind talking a little bit about how all this came to be and where I got to this point, how I got to this point. And I think your comment has triggered that. You see, in there. 1984, Bill started this business and, and David you know, made it electronic so that it moved it to a brand new world of being able to do things remotely and make reports that weren't just a paper and pencil output. So I'm, I'm actually at that point at the University of uh, Nebraska as a professor in science education. And so Bill and I talk regularly and, and I'm working with people. I'm trying to communicate with people. So I right. decide to start using his assessments. And you know what? I really found that they worked. Here's what I found out. I found out that I was working with young people that had no clue who they were. Yeah. They spent four years at a university learning, and nowhere did anyone help them understand self. Yep. Nowhere. 
every day. You see that every day everywhere, not even oh, at the college, do. just we college do. campuses. But, yeah, I know it's prevalent we, there. It is. It's like it's like we have an answer, folks, but the, the world isn't listening. and We keep shouting, and but eventually we'll get them. I'm not going to give up. So what happened <laughs> is that I wrote up what I was doing that I felt was unique and making a difference, and it got some notoriety. And all of a sudden, I'm invited to Washington, D.C. to receive an award from Carl Sagan for the Outstanding Teacher Preparation Program in the nation. And so and, what were you doing? You were giving the, uh, were you doing the DISC assessments and motivators, do you recall? Or I started only with DISC and then moved to DISC and motivators. By the way, reluctantly, I was convinced that DISC answered all questions. And then once I finally, Bill convinced me to go to motivators, then I, wow, that opened You're all like, kinds of okay, worlds. You're like, okay, wait a minute. This really answers yeah. a lot of questions. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. But I don't know why I was reluctant, but I think a number of us, well, I've been using DISC for years and it works. Yeah. So no, no, no. There's more to the story, folks. Grow, well, DISC is grow. easier in regards to, I mean, people get it right away. Motivators, it kind of needs to sink in with people, I think. Yeah. Behaviors are identifiable. They are yeah. observable. Yeah. Motivators are that hidden filter that lies yeah. behind your behaviors, underneath yeah. your behaviors. And I'll yeah. tell you, without the assessment, it does not get exposed. So yeah. that's why it's so crucial to actually work yeah. with driving forces. But it's let me actually go back way to more powerful than DISC. It I is. Think. It is. No. It is. So I but, go to Washington, and yeah. Carl Sagan is backstage, and he's so a busy amazing. man. And he doesn't know me from squat. He's just been invited over here to do something. Yeah. So he says to me, he says, uh, before we walk out there, at least tell me why I'm giving you this award. <laughs> <laughs> He's a rather direct man. Yes. So I had not thought about my elevator pitch, but that was the first time that I used the, the, the statement, well, I help my students by providing the science of self. And so the science of self has actually been a trademark now here at TTISI because awesome. that's really what we are trying to do. When we work with individuals, we are trying desperately to get them to understand the science of self. Uh, now, what happened was I came back to the university receiving this uh, national award. And at one point, finally, somebody said, well, maybe you ought to tell us what you do because you seem to get more notoriety than the rest of us. Yeah. So I did a presentation to the faculty. and. This is this is actually what happened. I mean, this is three quarters of the way through my presentation to the faculty. An administrator stands up with both his fists on the table, leaning toward me, and he says, we do not use tarot cards for decision making. Mm. Sort of the end of the talk, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I left that room angry. I left the room angry because I knew these things worked. I had used them. I know they work. I know they give voice to things that otherwise we couldn't talk about and put on the table and develop. I knew it worked. And so I made a decision. I was already into neurology, but I refocused my research that day on how can I prove scientifically that these assessments are real. Uh, and boy, have we, have, so now you understand where this comes from and where I, what I'm trying to do. It's not like it's not like I'm trying to prove the hypothesis. I'm a scientist. I'll accept whatever data I get. But the fact is, we have gotten data to, to prove that when you take these things seriously and when you allow yourself to answer them uh, from your heart, they give a accurate portrayal 
of, of a reality that we yep. now can actually lay on the table and work with. Yep. That is awesome. Out of contrast becomes our vision oftentimes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, clarified it for you. That's amazing. And I love what you said, gives voice to the things we we can't easily, I don't know, know if this is an exact quote, but the assessments give voice to things we don't easily talk about. Yes, yes. You know, they do. Absolutely. Uh, let's see. We've bounced around a little bit. May I back up and maybe fill in a couple of holes? Absolutely. That'd be great. Well, you know, we had talked about triggers and the fact that you use the wrong words or and I think this is important because of the election right now to just take this one step further and talk about the fact that we are having conversations, and I'll tell you, it almost happens daily because you'll run into somebody that feels the need to express their position on an issue. And we are not all in agreement, by the way. So we're polarized in ways that I don't know if I've experienced since the Vietnam War. Right. And I would really like the audience to think for a moment and just reflect on what's going on mentally. Yep. As soon okay. as, and I'm going to describe it this way. I'm going to describe two different kinds of, of uh, conversations. Okay. One conversation is a me-you conversation. The other conversation is a we. As soon as we have a me-you conversation, you may think that that's a debate and that's good. But the debate quickly um, moves to the level of argument. Yep. And as soon as that debate mechanism moves to an emotional load, thinking shuts down, walls go up, and you become solidified in your thinking. And in fact, you no longer are listening at all. You are simply responding to the way you see yep. the world. And you have eliminated conversation. You have eliminated trust. And you have eliminated the opportunity to have any influence whatsoever on the other individual. Yep. What is required is to consciously keep that conversation at the we level. Work from commonalities. Work from an open agenda where we are looking at the dimensions and the possibilities. And as soon as you break away from the we, you're lost. You're done. Yep. yep. I, I just think that's crucial, and if we really adhere to that, I, I think we can move light years on our conversations with people. But it is so hard because we each have our own agendas and our own filters and our own beliefs. And I'll tell you, uh, I, I'm using and thinking of politics right now, but it's true in every conversation. You know, I came down here from 40 years in education where my job was to think. My job was not to apply. It mm. was to create. And so I would come in to my brother and I would show him some new data on the brain scans. And I would be so excited about my findings. <laughs> yes. And he would say, what are you going to do with it? Yeah. What good is it? How can you sell it? And it took me months to figure out that the two of us were not communicating because we each had our, we were having a mental bias as yep. to what we heard and what was important. And for him, knowledge was not important unless you could use it. Right. For me, using it dirtied the concept. It took ah. a pure, beautiful learning and it 
dirtied it by applying it. It turned science into technology. You see, top technology is nothing but the application of a beautiful concept. I love to work with beautiful concepts. I don't dirty my hands by putting it into production. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? And, you know, you're thinking about the uh, motivators. So if you think about how and on the uh, and you are that was a work relationship, you know, so you think the same thing. You've got a utilitarian sales manager and then you've got someone who's uh, researching technology for the new product. I mean, it's the same same thing. You know, so what helps you all have a we conversation you understanding his perspective, him understanding your perspective, and then it becomes more of a we conversation. You're thinking about trigger words that you might not use in his yeah. style. You're thinking about, okay, what does he value, which is the motivators, and then you start having a, a more of a we conversation from that, right? Oh, you've got it. You know, and, and some people may think, well, that sounds like a lot of work. Um You know, at the beginning it may be, but the more you do it, the easier it becomes. And the more natural it becomes, and I'm sorry, the more effective you become. It's yeah. essential. If, we're, if we really want to move and be productive, we have got to be able to mentally move our mind to the, uh, to the other dimension. Wow, that's a beautiful connection. I, I, uh, I said I played Native American flute. I just uh, was uh, taping a, a new song last night. And I truly believe that the names of songs should tie to what you hear and that yep. they should cause you to reflect in interesting ways. And so the latest song that I was recording is called The Dance of the Mere Neuron. Oh. Now, mere neurons is our ability to experience and feel something that someone else is experiencing and feeling. Oh, okay. Ability to experience and feel. That is a great tie-in to what we're talking about. It is. And, and so in the case of my song, I'm playing a dual-chambered flute where literally the two of them are listening to each other and it's a reflection. So you play a, a, a four or five measures that have a particular tempo and a particular rhythm, and then it's replicated in some fashion by the other flute. And it's back and forth with the yin and yang of communicating and tying together and moving together rather than being two completely discourse uh, conversations. Yep. So mere neurons are important. It's just that we uh, probably don't use them as much as we should. And some of us are better at using them than others. Yeah. Uh, by the way, my wife has pointed that out to me throughout our married uh, life. <laughs> that, that, that she's got that figured out more? Yeah, that's right. I mean, <laughs> I used to dread coming home from parties. There'd be this 35-minute drive home, you know, where there's a debrief that takes place. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so mirror, did you spell it M-E-A-R, neuron? No, it's spelled just like a mirror on the wall. Mirror. Yeah, mirror. That's probably my southern pronunciation of it. Mirror no, neurons. No, it's, my, it's mine. Yeah, it's my my problem. I'm working. It's like being in Texas and talking about the uh, the roots of a plant instead of roots. <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. Yep. But, okay, so mirror neuron, and so that makes so much sense. And and to me, when you talk about it, people saying it might be work, what I find is that people will take their own results and do everything they can to understand them and apply them for themselves. And then, you know, the next step after that is, okay, so now I understand my own. Now let me read and understand others 
you know, and then the next step after that is, okay, I'm going to work towards adapting. And it is a process, and I'm sure there are things that we're building in our brain as we start moving towards others and exhibiting more. Um, to me, it's like uh, a bit of compassion uh, and understanding of others, you know, and, and that that's when it starts to feel we. Because if I can just understand where you're coming from, the, the whole vibe to our conversation is different. Um, it really is. It really is. I, I love the fact that you've laid that out into about a three-phase process. And by the way, you can't necessarily invert those. I think uh, understanding self is, is the crucial first step. Now, what happens many times is that once someone understands self, they get into this little self-talk that says, well, that's just who I am. I'm yeah. sorry. Uh, this is an explanation of your behavior, not an excuse. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, oh, I'm just a D. Well, yeah, you're a D. I talk to myself because I have that, uh, yeah. you know, that needs to manage herself, you know, so manage that that's stuff. Right. <laughs> you know? That's correct. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's, a, that's a self-talk that's really hard for people to move to yeah. that step and say, okay, that is who I am, but that may not be appropriate in some settings, and I'm yeah. going to have to learn how to modify that and adapt. Yeah. That's a yeah. very hard step to do. Let, let's talk for a moment about how this relates to the driving forces, because uh, you said you have a number of people that have some familiarity with our assessments. And, right. and some of the people, what's really been fascinating is that newbies, people who are new to our assessments, are embracing driving forces as if it was just a natural explanation of reality. Those that grew up on motivators are having more difficulty seeing the other end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. I find that interesting and fascinating. But what hit home for me is that Bill and I were on stage in a, in a conference doing a presentation together. And this is before driving forces existed. But mm -hmm. we had just looked at the data that showed that aversion was a very strong influence. And Bill, I'm standing behind Bill, and he says, Imagine a day of your life in the motivator that you're not. So I'm standing back there going, okay, uh, I'm high theoretical. What's my low? Okay, my low, wow, my low is a 12, which means that all 12 times I put traditional in the last phase. So yep. traditional actually is stronger than my theoretical. Not being uh -huh. traditional is stronger. And yep. so I'm thinking a day in my life where I would live out traditions. I would do the same thing. I would do it the same places. I would eat the same things. I would SOPs. have the same food. Oh, all of a sudden, I'm having, I'm literally going into an anxiety attack standing <laughs> on stage, thinking about what my life would be like if I was dictated to live in what I'm not. Yeah. And that really drove home for me that we have got to go back to the office and work on this. Yeah. This is powerful. Yeah, and to just uh, for those who are uh, listening, there's six motivators in the motivator assessment, and I've got a couple of podcasts that I'll refer to in the intro that talk about the motivators. And now what Dr. Ron is discussing is now we have an opportunity to move for those companies that want to, to move to the driving forces, which is just now incorporating Dr. Ron's research around what we want to avoid into the motivator's results, and it's now called driving forces. So you not only look at the top two motivators, you're also looking at what your lowest 
which now they kind of make up your primary drivers. So you get a, a more robust picture of what drives someone, what drives you, um, and it's very effective. And uh, what I have been doing, Dr. Ron, with people who aren't ready to change is I have started talking about what the lowest is and what it means and incorporating that. So, um, mm-hmm. so it's, you know, segueing into the new tool. But you're exactly right. It, the What you don't like is, as, and, and your research shows that, your brain lights up 100% correct uh, according to how they completed the assessment, if I'm recalling what you said earlier, 100% and st- more strongly on the things we want to avoid. That's correct. correct. Yeah, and actually, you've d- you've actually hit on another component of the research that we- that I didn't talk about. We are actually getting qualitative and quantitative. So I get numbers and I get pictures. Okay. But what's interesting is that you just highlighted the other thing that comes out of it. I'm getting an asymmetry. I get right side and left side. That's an asymmetry, and that's pretty straightforward. I also get intensity. So not only am I getting directionality, I'm getting intensity. And so what avoidance not only has directionality, it has an added intensity. Okay. Uh, maybe so, it's deeper than we need to go, but it is interesting. No, well, what you're seeing, though, in the research, it sounds like, is when somebody ranks something 12 times and it's their number six motivator on the motivators, it, what their brain would light up is a certain part of the brain that shows what you're trying to avoid something would light up, and then it would be brighter. That's um, correct. Like even more correct. intense on the, than on the things they say, well, yeah, I pick that, my top one. That's right. Is that correct? That's exactly what happens. Yeah, so it's more intense. Yeah, that's interesting. So, yeah, I'm, you and I are very similar. My number one is almost extreme theoretical, and the number two is utilitarian, and my number six is almost indifferent in uh, traditional regulatory. Yep. So it's the it's avoidance of thing. structure and, and process and, you know, like I have to do things the same way, right? Yeah. I can think of no other topic on earth that's more interesting than talking about ourselves and understanding (laughs) self. It is interesting because then once you understand that, then you can start like, you know who I love more than anything in my life? Not more than anything. That's a dramatic statement, but high traditional regulatory. Like, I don't want to do that, but I so now because I understand that that's not my forte, that other people who bring that to the table make help me be more successful, help me see things from a different viewpoint. And and everybody has the same thing. Whatever their lowest is, is the thing that you don't want to necessarily do, but the people around you who are good at that love to do it. And so... Yeah. Well, and I tell you, we're trying to come up with new approaches to team wheels and to creating teams and describing teams. You see, what's interesting is that, well, there's two parts of this. A comparison report compares you and I, and we can look at that and we can determine how we're similar and how we're different, and then that leads to a conversation about how to interact. It becomes far more complex when you look at a group of people on a team because not only do we want to understand each person, but frankly, we have to have diversity for the team to be effective. Right. But you have to have built in potential conflict for a really good team. The problem then becomes management and appreciation for each other because you have to have diversity. Yep. 
If everybody has great ideas and nobody's there to do the work, that is not a good team. Nope. nope. So it's fascinating that we have to have this yin and yang. We have to have diversity, but we have to appreciate diversity. Yep. Because by definition, diversity is potential uh, conflict. Yep. Yep. And that's where I see the beauty of, of uh, motivators and driving forces is, is you start to understand really what does somebody care about. The only way to really get that, by the way, assessments certainly help. But there's another thing we haven't mentioned that is part of this yin and yang. And I probably have been guilty of not doing that in the last uh, few minutes, like hour. Uh, But that's listening. About 80% of an effective conversation should be listening. And we are all guilty of even asking a question with the intent of answering it ourselves. And we have got to break that habit. We have to listen more, and we have to ask real questions and, and then shut up. Mm-hmm. For example, what did you do this weekend? You know what that really means? I don't care what you did this weekend, but I'm dying <laughs> to tell you what I did. <laughs> yeah. right? yeah. We do that all the time. We initiate yep. questions that are not questions. They yep. are simply leads into our own dialogue. Yep. Yeah, I like to ask real questions the way you said that, too, because that's a piece of it. Don't just ask questions. Ask real questions. Get into well, the conversation. Well, let's define real questions. A real question is something that cannot be answered with a yes or no. A yeah. real question is a question that you do not know the answer. Yeah. If you already yeah. know the answer, it's not a real question. If it yeah. can be answered with a yes or no, it's not a real question. If yeah. you adhere to those two rules, you've just opened up a world of interesting dialogue. You know, and it's I really pose. fun to take my, my years of education and apply it in a new world. It's been fun because what I just talked to you about is something that we've had to work with as educators, you know, uh, for eons. And I'm finding it fascinating that um, both worlds could learn from each other. We've got yeah. to do more synergism in the world. We've got to cross over. We spent the last hundred years separating all of our professionalism into little boxes. Oh, I'm a biologist. I'm a psychologist. I'm a, a business uh, manager. And now we start to realize that the only way to understand problems is through synergy. It's when you tie things together. And so, yes, it's more difficult, but it's also more exciting, folks. Yep. Yep. And, and, Two thoughts on that is the asking real questions and the listening. I think that with the science of self, the more we're aware of ourselves, uh, I know for me personally, and I see it in other people, it's easier to listen to other people when you understand yourself better and you have confidence in what you know, Then it's and then you you can enjoy others and not feel like you need to insert so much. Uh, I think that's a big piece of it. And then what you said about the groups, the university and business and psychologists all getting together. I also think science itself helps with that because there's so many similarities and there's so many differences. It's like getting a team to communicate. Once you understand where different people are coming from, then you can start to see the similarities and appreciate the differences. I mean, it, I just not to overstate the value of knowing motivators and driving forces, but there's huge value in that, in in diversity and appreciating diversity, at all levels. Yeah, there's two uh, two things that come to mind that are um, things to be overcome to accomplish what you just said. The yeah. first is that each of us, as we develop our area of expertise, for some reason, 
that requires that we create our own jargon. And so uh, even yeah, though we yeah. may be talking about the same thing, we have our own vocabulary that separates us. Yeah. You know, education talks about dispositions. Uh, the government talks about uh, 21st century skills. Uh, we talk about soft skills or att- personal attributes. We have language barriers that mm-hmm. get in the way of communication. And that, that's a major hurdle. Yep. What's the other one? You said there are two. You know, I, and I, as soon as I said that, I said to myself, you never indicate how many you have of something because by the time you get to it, you forget it. <laughs> but jargon <laughs> is a big process, one. Yeah. Uh, the jargon could cover oh. two. Well, it could. Um, no, I think the, the other area, though, that is really a problem is that we have isolation. We, we become experts and we create silos. And the separation is more than just jargon. It's a physical and a mental and a philosophical separation that uh, each of us feel like we have the answers and therefore we don't necessarily listen to others. Um, listening then becomes another key word in this process that we really need to embrace the concept. All right, so that is the end of episode 29. Show notes are at pricelessprofessional.com slash brain, all lowercase. And I like closing on that last statement we talk, where Dr. Ron is talking about listening. And he, I love what he said. You have to have diversity and appreciation of that diversity in order for uh, diversity to work. And... of having appreciation and having an effective conversation is about listening. And I love he how he so bluntly puts it, ask real questions and shut up. <laughs> ask real questions. That's a solid point. And then shut up is the other solid point. Uh, so great advice around listening. That's something we've covered here often. And it's something I know I'm always working on. And I, I know many of my clients And friends are also working on that. So just want to remind you that in the show notes, you'll see links to many of the things we talked about, some of the images, sample reports. So go to the show notes to find that, pricelessprofessional.com forward slash brain. And we'll have episode 30 will also be put up. That's going to be the second half of this interview. And the way you'll find those show notes is go to pricelessprofessional.com forward slash brain and the number two, brain two. And don't forget, if you want to use the iPhone app for the pricelessprofessional.com podcast, it's actually a Wake Up Eagle Workforce podcast through my company. You can go to wakeupeagleworkforce.com and there's a link there to, for you to download the app. It's free. All right. We'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for tuning in. All the best. This episode of the Wake Up Eager Workforce podcast was brought to you by Priceless Professional Development. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's show, head over to pricelessprofessional.com to gain access to more professional development resources. 